0: Join me on March 14th as I'm joined by Condé Travelers' senior editor, Megan Spirell, to share a behind-the-scenes peek into the making of our Women Who Travel power list. But there's so much more waiting for you in the full article, from film directors to war journalists... To wildlife ecologists, these women are reshaping the travel landscape and leaving a lasting impact on the world. Tune in to hear why Megan and myself are so excited about the 15 women we've chosen to highlight. Subscribe to cntraveler.com today to access the complete list and be inspired by their incredible journeys. And for a limited time, our listeners can unlock everything Traveller has to offer for just $5. Simply use code POD5, that's P-O-D-5, at checkout to access exclusive travel insights, breathtaking destinations, and invaluable tips to fuel your adventure spirit. All for just $5. And remember, every adventure starts with just one step. Join us in celebrating the power of women in travel. Visit cntraveler.com today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Jerez, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a now not-so-new podcast from Condé Nast Traveler that digs deep into the realities of traveling as a woman today and celebrates why we'll never stay home. I'm Lale Arikoglu and I'm with my co-host, Meredith Carey. Hello. And for our second episode of season two, we've hit the road and we're all the way in Austin for South by Southwest. And we thought we would take advantage of this moment to get one resident Austinite. And two other women who are speaking on panels at South By this week, all of whom have amazing roles to play in protecting our oceans. And so we have with us today champion freediver and conservationist Tanya Streeter, Sheila Bowman, Seafood Watch Manager of Culinary and Strategic Initiatives at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and marine biologist and founder of Ocean Collective, Ayana Johnson. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi.
1: Do you guys just want to start by telling us, maybe Tanya, if you want to go first, those of you who are listening and who read our Women Who Travel Package may uh, recognize her name uh, and the story that Lolly wrote about female free divers. but do you want to just start um, by telling everyone how you got involved um, in ocean conservation in the first place?
2: Yes, I was born and raised in the Cayman Islands, so that's that's home apart from being an Austinite as well, been here 17 years, but born and raised in Grand Cayman and grew up in the water. So uh, that was just sort of a natural, my natural habitat. No TV, nothing better to do than just be in the water. And so I eventually became a free diver more by accident than on purpose. And as a way of, I, I've, I've said, pay it back, pay it forward, um, honoring the, that environment that gave me so much. I was always going to be led towards something, you know, conservation, environmentally based that, that targeted specifically the ocean. Um, and I've, the most recent big project that I've been involved in is A Plastic Ocean, the film. And I'm a patron for the Plastic Oceans Foundation. And I'm a chief uh, straw shamer, plastic bag shamer. <laughs> you I'm and me both. I'm horrible. I'm horrible to see in the supermarket. I will just like, <gasps> oh, you're doing what? And I don't even know you. <laughs> um, but I feel it's my God-given right at this point. <laughs> you know, I've been to the bottom of the sea and I've, I've, I've seen it all. So, um, yeah, that's that's my big passion at the moment. And it's just really wonderful to have watched this big wave of change grow in in the last i've been involved with making the film for the last sort of six or seven years um and to be at a place now where i feel like i can just i don't have to share everything that comes across my social media feed because everybody else is and i mean not to say that i don't i promise i do but you know it it, everybody's on board with such a big subject so yeah i'm feeling feeling like i've kind of come full circle with my mission and
0: diving and Paying the sea back. And Sheila, what about
3: you? Well, you know, it's a similar story in that I was born and raised in California. And in my life, I've always been lucky enough to live within view of the ocean. I mean, sometimes you have to stand in the backyard and get on your tippy toes. But I've always been very close to the ocean, mostly the Pacific Ocean. And it's um, just been an opportunity. You know, you're in the water, you're on the water, you're under the water. And as you are in that kind of environment and you learn what you learn and you see what you see, it's just a really, been a really powerful force for me. So um, my background in marine science really has been more with subtitle ecology and which is really just the stories of the plants and the animals and kind of how they make it work. And, um, you know, when you start to sort of see how beautifully the ocean is put together and same with the land, but we've altered the land sometimes can be harder to see those things but um it really kind of creates this place where you know you want more people to know about what you're what you've seen so I have um been very happy to be working at the Monterey Bay Aquarium for over 20 years and um it's really a mission you know of our institution to try to bring people under the water you know my mom's a great example of someone who just thinks it's a lot of water and what's really in there and um we get a chance to show people what's there and what's, you know, what's to save and what's to lose. So it's been a really mm-hmm. great place for me to be um, home. And we just have a really great program that doesn't just sort of show people what's there and beautiful, but also kind of some of the challenges and then what they can do to be part of a solution. So it feels like a really great place to be engaged and um, not, not just sort of talking the talk, but actually helping people walk the walk. And can you explain your job title? So Seafood Watch is the aquarium's program that talks about what seafood people should be eating. And I mean, the short story is people should be eating seafood. A lot of people like, well, I just am not going to eat that. And that really sort of ecologically and and deliciously is just not the right um, kind of response to what you might think is going on. But I have, I think, maybe the best job ever because within our program, we obviously work a lot with consumers. We have millions of people that visit our aquarium and others every year but um, we also work a lot with the people in the seafood chain so the producers all the way through the suppliers to the to the diners and eaters and one of the key links in that chain which is going to be where most of the influence is is with the culinary field chefs culinary media those are the sorts of folks who are really telling us what we should be eating not necessarily what we shouldn't be eating which isn't necessarily their job but I mean, who else could get us to eat brains and eels and all the the strange things we put into our mouths? It's these chefs who make it so delicious and so um, kind of trendy to do it. So that's a lot of my job is getting chefs who are typically interested in better food systems, have seen maybe have seen the path or have seen the bad, and understand how that impacts the taste and the deliciousness and the future of their industry. Really getting them to start understanding you know, that they can still cook fish, it can still be delicious, it may have a strange name that they haven't heard of before, but giving it a try and getting it out there on our palates is going to be a really important way we shift away from some of the higher impacts we've had to things that have been um caught or farmed in a more innovative way that probably is where our future of dining should be.
0: And so Ayana, I know that right now you live in New York, mm-hmm. but did you grow up
4: by the ocean? I grew up in Brooklyn, which people don't think of as by the ocean, but it is. Um, New York City has over 500 miles of coastline. And so I never grew up thinking of myself as living on the coast. I thought of the ocean as a place that you like get on a plane to go to. Um, and when I was five, my family took me to Key West, Florida. And we stayed in this little bed and breakfast. And I was in the pool all day, every day, and learned how to swim. And went on a glass bottom boat and saw a reef for the first time. And my mind was Totally blown. Um, And I just completely fell in love with the sea. And I held a sea urchin in my hand and I felt its tube feet crawling across the palm of my hand. And I was like, I'm holding an alien. This is amazing. How can this be my job? Um, So I was hooked from a very young age, too. I think most people who go into ocean conservation have one of these really incredible childhood experiences. And so one of the things I would like to see is more kids have that. I mean, there are beaches in New York City. You can take the subway to the beach in New York City. There are kids who live in L.A. who've never been to the beach. So I think we'll have a lot more uh, robust and diverse next generation of conservationists if we can figure that piece out. But then I kind of, you know, put that in the back of my head for the next 20 years until it was time to figure out what to do for grad school, um, and it just seemed like more fun than being a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But in the end I, end, I ended up doing mostly policy work. So I've worked at the EPA and at NOAA, and I've worked um, in philanthropy and nonprofits, and usually at this interface of science and policy, trying to help be that translator and, and make sure that everyone's on the same page and that we're headed towards um, restoring and sustaining our ocean.
1: Tanya, you've spent most of your time in, like, what we, like, me, who, like, pokes our feet on the shore, (laughs) um, what I would call the deep, so can you just talk about, like, the feeling of, like, that exploration underwater and what that has meant for you, because I feel like, you know, a lot of people, and you guys can talk about this, too, a lot of people, when they, you know, go to the aquarium, they're, like, you know, looking at a tank and they're, like, okay, these fish live in this water, but maybe in real life they live so far underwater that if you were just swimming or snorkeling or whatever, you would never see them unless you were like yeah. you.
2: Well, I mean, the, the the discovery or much of the discovery of freediving is 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 like on a personal level. There's this saying in freediving that we we don't dive to look around ourselves; we dive to look within ourselves. But you know, those are also the really deep, crazy. Record dives, the the fun is putting on mass fins and snorkel and just going and checking out the sea urchins. And Mm -hmm. that's like one of my favorite things to do, just put them on in my hand, wait for him to stick there and show all the kids like, check this guy out. so, so yeah, but I mean, I've mean, i had amazing experiences when going in freediving to, to, to find deep enough water for our training dives. We typically have to go out into blue water or find somewhere where, where the boat w- will sit off off the reef where the wind is blowing in the right direction. And so my dive line is out like over thousands of feet of water. And one of the things we do is we take take the dive ballast, the weight uh, at the bottom of the rope, and just throw the whole thing in the water. And you have to imagine that if you're a large pelagic fish, like 400 feet down and this thing goes vroom, right in front of you you look up up the rope and go well where's that going (laughs) and so invariably there have been times where you know moments after the ballast is thrown in and sinks all the way down there. I jump in and I hold onto the rope and I begin my my warming up and my breathing and I just kind of chilling out and my, I'm rocking on the waves and my eyes are closed and then my eyes are open and closed and and then I'll open my eyes. And we're like, whoa! <laughs> Look, it just came up from the deep, and and definitely it's it's things like large things that that are not really normally in shallow water. Um, you know, we've we had a a huge in in Grand Cayman where the water's pretty warm. Um, a huge mola mola like the size of this table just come oh, all wow. the way crazy yeah they're <laughs> ridiculous looking coming, coming out <laughs> going like this one. oh my god that's an elephant ear or something <laughs> coming right at me um and and you know I spent my life in Cayman and, and had never seen one and obviously it's because it was cool down there I don't know I look yeah. at the marine biologists as I say this because you know um and then there was one time where we were in Turks and Caicos and my dive rope gets thrown in and I'm just lolling around and I look down and there's this about four meter oceanic white tip shark just kind of going dunk 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 up against my my dive line and I'm like "Hmm." (laughs) and I look at my husband like hey babe come look at this (laughs) (laughs) and he gets in he goes wow and gets out <laughs> and I was like okay and I carry on breathing and my, my dive team get in one by one and they're like wow cool wow cool and I'm like this is all so easy for you to say you all have like massive breathing apparatus on your back <laughs> I look in my silverware see like a giant bait fish that's gonna whiz down the rope and whiz back up again and there's this massive you know eat first ask questions later shark uh, anyway he took off and it was just jellyfish is always really wild sharks get a bad rap they do Be and careful, I Tanya. I <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I love me so. I could go on about the amazing shark stories that you know that we have, where everybody on the boat, instead of being terrified, is like, "Let's get in and look." And I'm like, my heart is just swelling. Nobody's worried about it, but when it's so that much
4: beautiful. bigger than you, oh, yeah. no, I hear you. I think the lesson there for me is just this respect for nature, right? Like we are not at the top of the food chain. And not when you're out there, for definitely sure. not when yeah. you're out there. And it it puts things in perspective in a really beautiful way. I mean, the ocean is enormous, and I think that's that's great for the planet I mean that's what keeps us going but um, at the same time it it makes it hard to connect with because people see the ocean as this like big blue thing as you were describing it's like what is even in there Um, but it's I think that's also what makes it a place that brings us such peace when you're sitting on the shore of the ocean and you see the waves rolling in and it's very meditative Um, and so The challenge with that is that people think it's so big that you can't hurt it, Um, but we very clearly can. I mean, we have microplastics in sea ice in Antarctica now. I mean, we've thoroughly polluted the ocean, and it's so... uh, I think figuring out how to get that through to folks and say, it is really big, but we also have, you know, overfished a third of the, the fish populations already, and we're on track to do more if we don't think about how to manage things more carefully. And, you know, we've only protected a very small fraction of the ocean, like 2% of the ocean is in fully protected, enforced areas. Um, and that's just not enough. I mean, scientists recommend 30 to 50%. So we have a lot long ways to go in terms of explaining um this kind of why you should care what's at stake and what we all have to gain from getting ocean conservation right and so tanya when we
0: um chatted before i remember you saying how you know growing up in the cayman islands it wasn't hard as a kid to notice that every year there was just more plastic in the ocean yeah um But I'd love to know from the three of you if there was sort of like a aha moment when you suddenly thought like, oh shit, like I need to do something. I need to play my parts and play a role in protecting this thing that's so much bigger than I am.
3: Well, you know, I think for me it started um, years ago and it was really with a very specific fish, which are the West Coast salmon species, which we all love salmon, right? In California. Has done uh, decades worth of damage to really um, kind of those freshwater habitats, but you know, just learning—it kind of goes back to what I was saying initially. When you learn the things a salmon can do that you know no one in this room can do, um, they're incredible animals, and we have thrown so many challenges in their way. And it really—I think those are some of the aha moments for me when I just you sort of marvel at this thing, and then you see sort of the disrespect, I guess, and. Um, And I think another aha moment that's been more recent, and it's not necessarily just mine, but is sort of becoming more widespread, but sort of getting to what we were just talking about with microplastics, because that's in our food now. It's not just in the Mm -hmm. habitat. When you go and get fish and you can do a lab assay on them, those microplastics are in our food. And if they're they're in in our table salt, they're in us. (laughs) So talk about closing the loop, right? All of this idea that You know, we have a very strong human instinct of this sort of not in my backyard. But what we don't realize is our backyard's the planet. The planet is now coming full circle. And the plastics we've been throwing away for decades are in our food and in our body. And that's not great for us. Um, But I think there's enough information and data on YouTube to make you want to open a second bottle of wine and (laughs) try to think about it. The plastic doesn't go away. So it's just sitting there for the decades that's been going on. And I am equally dogmatic is the word I'm going to use about straws. What is with straws, people? (laughs) Like, you know, oh, it keeps your lipstick on. And I'm thinking, (laughs) and it destroys the planet. So which can you? And every
4: plastic bag is used for an average of 12 minutes before Mm. it's thrown away. And it lasts forever. Every piece of plastic we've ever created still exists on this planet. Just
3: in a smaller and smaller and smaller form. it breaks down in the salt and the sun. It's all still there. So Mm. anyway, those are some moments I think that have been very good aha moments lately for people less maybe engaged as the folks in this Mm -hmm. room. You know, when it starts to hit you and really be something, like you look at that oyster and you're like, you don't see the plastic. You're not going to pick it out. It's in there. So that gives people, I think, some cause to maybe stop and think a little yeah. bit more?
4: I've got one. I, um, I've i had a lot of aha moments. The one that comes to mind right now is I spent about three years working on this small island in the northeast Caribbean called Barbuda. It's part of Antigua and Barbuda. And it's about 1,600 people that live or on this was. island. I don't think that's how many There are now, 400 finally. people who've moved back after yeah. Hurricane Irma. It was completely um, devastated. Um, but they are the toughest and most resilient people I know. So they are rebuilding. Um, but when I first got there, I went into a little restaurant and I was asking, you know, what's on the menu and it's kind of whatever they have. Right. So she's giving me the rundown She says, Oh, we have this fish filet. And I was like, Whoa, cool. What kind of fish is it? And she's like, I don't know, whitefish. And at, I I happen to see that they're getting delivery, and so this box comes in the store. It's frozen Alaskan pollock fillets, and I was just thinking, we have completely messed up our food system. If the Caribbean has to import frozen seafood from Alaska, like we're screwed. <laughs> I mean, not only is this you know problematic in terms of food security, it has a huge Carbon uh, footprint as well. And so, just like everything about this implies that we are living in a way that's totally out of balance with the planet. And so, that was one of those moments I was like, oh, geez, you've <laughs> got a lot of work to do. And so, when we think about what is sustainable and where to go in terms of conservation, yes, pollution is a really big deal, and that's the thing that we see. But there's so much needs to be done in terms of thinking about what it means to be sustainable in um, in a local or regional sense. And so I love that Monterey Bay's Seafood Watch program has regional or local cards where you can find out what are the best options to eat in the place where you are, um, because because supporting local fishermen and supporting the, your your local maritime economy is a really big part of it too. We want to have those artisanal fishermen make a good living and be feeding their communities and have local people have access to local seafood. So um, that was one of the moments where I was just like, oh, man, (laughs) where do we even begin with this? So um, but for me, the big picture answer that I think about a lot is we have pretty good spatial management of things on land, right? We have zoning on land. We have industrial, commercial, residential parks. But we do a terrible job of that in most parts of the world in the ocean. Um, It's still very much the Wild West, especially on the high seas. And so we have this opportunity to think, take a big picture look at the ocean and how we use it and say, okay, well, this is going to be the place for wind energy. And this is the place for aquaculture. And this is for wild fishing. And this is for recreation. And this is the place we just leave nature to be and to, to heal itself and replenish the areas around it. Um, and so that is a process, ocean zoning, that's just really starting to pick up steam. California was one of the world leaders in that with the Marine Life Protection Act. I led an ocean zoning program on three islands in the Caribbean for a few years. Um, Europe and New Zealand and Australia, it's, it's starting to gain steam. And I think if we have a plan for how to use the ocean, that's like a really good step towards not totally using it up and wasting everything. Um, so I'm really excited about that trend.
2: Well, I think my aha moment was really um, a little bit in relation to what you you're touching upon. What you're saying with you know zoning the ocean and 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 it it it's just it's such a great path towards the right thing. If only we could literally. You know, zone, physically zone off the ocean and keep all the microplastics in one area (laughs) and not in another. Um, And it it, it was this the the human impact, the human health impact of of plastics. Um, Having grown up in Cayman and having seen so much of it, I think. I hadn't become numb to it, but it was just always part of my consciousness and confusion. Why are we doing this as a kid? Mm -hmm. Why, what? Why are we, what? These beach bars and the plastic straws and everything. And then as I got older and and, and more educated and more involved, but it was in in making um, the film A Plastic Ocean that that I really, super steep learning curves every time we went off to a shoot and come back and change a whole bunch of things in my kitchen and my house, the way I feed my kids and what I feed my kids. Um, But yeah, I mean, at the time, I I had had one child and was, you know working on trying to have the second and and it was just one more thing that I thought oh my goodness that I have to think about you know you think about what you eat and and uh, what you put on your skin and then you think about this idea that you just you can't escape your exposure to plastics and and it's such a challenge to try to minimize it um as somebody who was facing fertility problems, and just so far down that path. And then I think uh, 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 we wrapped the the last shoot in the film was when my son, who's now almost three, was, I think, weeks. Like, I don't even know how I did that shoot. But anyway, he's like this dangling baby in the baby born while I'm meeting with these scientists who are explaining to me um, how the toxins are, no, no matter how new and fresh and, you know, newborn he was... I had downloaded a whole bunch of exclusively related to plastic toxins to my son before he was ever born. Like I had doomed my, my child to, to the various diseases that are, again, exclusively associated to the toxins in plastic. And that was not so much an aha as an oh, fuck moment. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. I have another really short one, which is um, when I was doing research for my PhD in the Caribbean, I interviewed hundreds of fishermen and one of the fishermen, I interviewed a lot of really old guys who told me incredible stories about the way things used to be, and they all started with the way things used to be because overfishing is so rampant that the large fish, the large groupers and snappers um, and sharks in a lot of places are essentially gone from large parts of the Caribbean. But this 15-year-old I interviewed um, who'd been fishing for six years, who was very excited to tell me, um, he said that fishermen used to measure or show the size of the fish they caught vertically, like how far their hand was off the ground, like the size of a fish relative to the size of a person. And he said, now we show the size of fish we catch horizontally. And he held his hands at like shoulder width instead of head high. And that to me was just like... We have completely changed these ocean ecosystems. And having a fifteen-year-old tell you that, um, and tell you that when his dad goes out fishing, sometimes he doesn't catch anything and spends all this money on gas, and then they have to like go out to McDonald's or find some sort of cheap meal because they can't eat healthy local seafood. Um, those are the kind of moments that make you really think about what we can do differently. So, you know, obviously
1: we've been saying that some people are realizing that plastics are a huge issue, but It goes beyond that, like you guys were saying, into the way we eat, what we use that we don't think goes into the ocean. One, how do we make people care? And two, how do we make kids, like how do we get more people like that 15-year-old who notice that something is wrong and want to do something about it?
2: Education and education. Mm -hmm.
1: Where? how?
2: experiences. I mean, I'm a firm believer in education and and, 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 in any format that you can get it in. Um, You know, if you don't know, you can't care. Um, I don't think you have to see the ocean of, obviously it's an added benefit and it's a blessing for so many of us it can, but I think the vast majority can't and don't ever in their lifetime. And they won't make the connection that, that their life is completely dependent on the, the health and life of the ocean. Um, but I think education as early as possible. I mean, I have young kids. You can brainwash those kids, man. You can. <laughs> And I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you can. And you know, they'll, they, it, it, it responsible education um, uh, in an age appropriate way that doesn't make them feel hopeless. That's really important when issues are so big. But it's really important for, for people to understand that that their contribution to the problem is is a big contribution. It's not nothing. Um, and that they also don't have to face every problem all at once. It's okay to pick. One of these kids said, but what about ocean acidification? And I said, well, yes. And I'm sure somebody will come and talk to you about that. And it's, it's really, really important. And it, you can't feel overwhelmed to the point of then going, I can't do anything. And so you just don't do anything, especially with young people. It's really important to empower them. Which is why I keep coming back to education. I mean, it is tougher to educate older generations. Um so the where and the how, I mean, you know, I, th- I think I think schools and I think age-appropriate and I think as part of the curriculum, you know. Yeah.
3: And I would add that it's in addition to educating them about the issue, it is giving them the tools the and the behaviors. Yep. Because I remember growing up, you know, we were sort of told, like, turn off the lights, turn off the lights, turn off the lights. And I drove my parents crazy, like they'd be sitting in the room and we'd be turning off the lights. But <laughs> we have seen that kind of behavior you know, apply in this generation. So I do think that younger people can grasp, first of all, have a better grasp than most of the rest of us about the kind of world they're going to be growing up and living in. But I think that there are, there is a cadre of behaviors that people can start really taking to heart. So it is things like no straws, using reusable bags, not using, you know, single use plastics, questioning and thinking about what you're eating. And I mean, to me, the biggest thing is just don't trust that the government or the producer or, you know, someone else is taking care of the thoughts that you value because they don't. There's not a lot of evidence that the current system is is functioning and thinking and nimble that way. So it's going to be the user, the end user, the consumer that's going to be asking the questions and pushing the conversation forward. What role do you think that, like, the aquarium as a unit, plays in that education that Tanya was talking about? Well, we bring thousands of school kids in every year for free just to get them under the water and getting that experience. So I think we do really try to, I know that's one of Julie Packard, our executive director's big investment, is in that next generation. So we really try hard to get those kids in. Um, But I think it is really giving them very specific actions based on science, like, and the ability to think through, like, what is science? Like, if someone tells you one thing, and someone tells you the other thing, how do you decide what's the right thing? And how do you not just throw your hands up and say, forget it, I won't do either, which is another piece of human nature, I think, that we have to all fight. But, you know, training these kids to understand, and even older folks, You know, there's science out there and science has great value and science isn't trying to sell you something necessarily profit from you necessarily um, hold kind of some sort of skin in the game. And being aware of science, I think, is a really strong thing that all of us can add to our sort of repertoire of things where we, we, you know, we put our weight into.
4: I'm a pretty big fan of science. <laughs> Yay, no. science mean, the whole PhD thing, but I was also one of the leaders of the March for science because I feel like more now more than ever, we needed to um, get a million people into the streets in five hundred cities around the world with three hundred partner organizations, including the Monterey Bay Aquarium, to say,, um, we we want to be making we want policy decisions to be grounded in evidence. We have this amazing thing called the scientific method that helps us understand the world. Let's actually use it to make decisions that um, take care of our health and well being. And not only was the aquarium a partner, but they held a science march of the penguins, where the penguins marched through the aquariums, and there were all these amazing signs that said like, climate science gives me happy feet, and <laughs> like adorable <laughs> things like this. Um, Science is black and white. We script them a little bit, but yes, they're good good spokespeople. Um, But the, the thing that comes to mind for me, in addition to, I completely agree with what both of you just said, I would add that there's a huge opportunity to lead by example. Oh, so, yeah. Tanya, when you berate people for their, Physically their plastic and usage, verbally, and when you go to the aquarium, you will notice that in their food court, I was just there a few weeks ago, and I learned that the mola is Julie Packard's favorite fish. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, you go to the cafeteria, and there is no plastic. You see a drinks section without any plastic bottles. It is possible, people. And it helps you just imagine that it's that is possible that's not only possible it's doable and everything's fine and your food till still tastes good in a paper dish instead of a plastic bowl and everything's fine so the next step there i would say is leading by example and then the the broader version of that is the cultural shift that we need i mean how do we get Artists and musicians um, and museums and all of these cultural institutions um, and influential folks to be um, on board, to incorporate this into their work, to help change the narrative, to build this um, cultural will that leads to the political will, that leads to the policy changes that we need to see and to the corporate shifts that we need. I mean, we're seeing now more than ever the ability of citizens to change corporate practices. Uh, We're seeing that really loud and clear with the movement for gun control right now. And the same happens uh, when it comes to ocean conservation. So companies are starting to step up and make these commitments to conservation, but they need this continued pressure and To be the consistent reinforcement that there is a new cultural standard and a new norm and that people are voting with their
3: dollars and i just have to say it doesn't take a hundred thousand people or even a thousand people to influence a company or a politician Mm -hmm. you know if you go ahead and do that and write that letter and make that comment or post it on your social media it's amazing the impact just one or two people can have I talk with businesses around the country who the first time they heard about Seafood Watch, they had no clue about seafood, so they were introductory level. But very quickly, they're moving towards solutions because really, as you said, it's it's the the, the bottom line, right? The consumer mm-hmm. and their money and what consumers want is what those businesses, ultimately the smart ones, should want to be providing. So I guess I just want to, I hate the word empower, but I just want to give people this idea that you know, don't put it off or think it's just me and I can't really do much because we've seen amazing amount of progress in changing attitudes with important influential people as a result of one or two letters mm-hmm. or one or two um, indications from you know a classroom full of kids I mean it's really powerful and they look for that input and so use it use that strength and You know,
0: we're all women at this table (laughs) and you're all very successful in your fields. And I'd love to know sort of what your views are on getting more women into conservation work. And Tani, you know, you spoke of a very personal experience that kind of was another wake up call as to the urgency of fixing this problem, um, which was also a very female experience. Um, And I was wondering if you'd be the three of you be able to speak to that at all.
4: I would actually say ocean conservation is one of the fields in which women really are leading already um, in a lot of different ways. Um, Obviously, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has a a woman leading it and a lot of women on the executive team. Um, The Ocean Conservancy is also led by women. We're starting to see not just women in the sector, but in these CEO roles, Um, and I think I think we're actually doing okay there. Where we're falling short in ocean conservation is racial diversity. Um, It is one of the least diverse fields and more so than um, land conservation as well. Um, But overall, the environmental movement has about 12% of staff are people of color in the U.S. compared to 38% of the U.S. population. Um, And only 4% of board seats are people of color. And so when we think about if we want to win and save the planet, which I hope we're all, you know, on board with that, then we need to and be involving all these different communities, all these different constituencies. Um, we need to have everyone on board, and so I really worry about um, about the lack of diversity because it just means we're not reaching, you know, a third to half of the population of the United States because people see it as this thing for white dudes wearing Patagonia fleeces, whereas when you pull communities about their views on conservation, communities of color, especially Latino, Black, also Asian communities, are more strongly in favor of conservation policy than their white counterparts. And so by not engaging those communities, it's like we're, it's like we don't want to win. You yeah, know?
2: Ta- not tapping into a great resource. Yeah, yeah
4: but on the female um, angle, so my consulting company, Ocean Collective, is all women. And that was actually not by design. I just made a list of all the smartest people who I thought would be really pleasant to work with who were freelancers. And I could pull under one umbrella and we could work on projects together. And there was one dude on the list. And I was like, we don't need a token dude. We'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) He ended up, he was starting his own company anyway. So it ended up just being all women by happenstance. And it's fascinating because I've never worked with only women before. And the way that we communicate is totally different. Um, A colleague of mine, we were on a conference call about our business strategy. um, And at the end of the call, she said, this was a really interesting phone call. No one cut me off or jumped in when I paused to take a breath. Like, we all just let each other finish. Um, And I had just never thought of that before. So um, I'm really enjoying that. But that's just sort of like my little world that I've created um, out in Brooklyn.
3: Well, I know at the Aquarium, we are still strongly working with getting young women, especially, into the whole STEM, the science, the mathematics, Mm -hmm. the technology, just because I think the system still does Bias away towards um, strengthening in, in young girls' minds that that's where they can succeed and in fact, in coding and a lot of other things, you know girls are pretty great. So we have done a lot of that and I, I completely reflect what you're saying, you know, bringing that diverse element in so that you know hopefully there is in these PhD programs and these agencies that are creating our policy more than just a, you know a majority of white guys. And um, I would just say as well for the culinary field, where white men really dominate, um, not only in the businesses but in the kind of awards and the recognition, we really, really need to get some women in there. And I think it's because women think about food differently. Um, it's not just about the taste and the appearance and the accomplishment. It's about the hospitality and the feel, the feeding and the caring and i think that they go very quickly towards these ideas of better food systems for better you know human happiness and the planet benefits by that
4: women think about food differently as you said but also about the future differently as tanya was tanya's story is a great example of that i mean thinking about how do you take care of your unborn child and give them the best chance to succeed. And so evolutionarily, women tend to think longer term. You're thinking about the health of your future, the health of your children, and the future generations. Whereas men were kind of wired to think about, like, how do I protect and feed my family today? So there's this interesting dichotomy. And obviously, we need both, right? Like, we need to eat today and stay safe. but We also need to make sure there's something left for tomorrow. So when we leave women out of the conversation about the future of the ocean, we um, we're, we're missing a really important natural strength of thought process. Um, and so, I mean, I, I didn't mean to sell it short. There certainly is more to be done on gender diversity, especially in leadership in this field. Um, and I think that is, if, if, if we don't actually care about equity, there still is a reason <laughs> to pursue it, just because we'll have that balance of thought processes, which will benefit us.
2: I, I, I mean, I second all of that, and I just think again, from my mothering role, I, I just think we're we're naturally nurturers, and that's going to be of ourselves f- so that we're around to protect our young, you know, of our young, of our communities, of our, you know, our, our, our wider community of ocean and planet. So you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that there are as many women as actively involved you know compared to to other industries in Mm -hmm. in conservation but you know we could have more we can always have more
0: (laughs) i really hope i'm not setting us up to end this podcast on a really depressing note <laughs> but are we totally <laughs> fucked <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't think so um you know I can only really speak to the to to and in a very limited way anyway um to the issue of, of plastic pollution and it's huge and it's massive and it's terrifying but we're not too far gone you know we we are powerful enough to stem the tide um it's not like we don't have solutions. There are solutions. We have to turn industry around and we have to change legislation. Um, it's not a difficult, as, as a consumer, it is not a difficult thing to get on board with. It, it, it's pretty easy to see. Um, you know, when, when you start looking at a, a wider demographic of people in a, a lower socioeconomic position than, you know, who are looking at cost. Uh, you know, again, that, that's, that's down to, to, to producers. We have to put out cost-effective, planet-friendly alternatives. Um, but no, I don't, I don't think you're ending on a alone. I don't think any of us will say, <laughs> pack your bags. <laughs> We're leaving for Mars right away. Um, but, uh, you know, we can't, we can't lose sight of the problem. We can't lose sight of our power. I think we're, we're well on the way. The wave of change, you know, I've just got off the surf wave, so I'm all about the waves right now. Um, but the wave of change is growing and moving very, very fast, and I am so excited to be on it with so many other people.
3: I would agree. I think there's a lot of statistics that you could rattle off, and it would be a depressing, pretty depressing moment. And I think for me what balances that is this idea that there's so many innovative thinking people out there looking at these problems from a completely different perspective and pulling in solutions that are unexpected. And in a lot of places, you know, a lot of cases are just beautiful. Mm. So for me, you know, I see those, those hopeful moments and they're a little bit in the minority right now. But if we can support that innovation and become adopters of those kinds of technologies, and maybe not hold on so tight to a system that hasn't worked um, instead of holding on so tight to what we've been doing and trying to tweak it maybe it's time to you know take a 180 degree glance in the other direction and see if there's a different way to do it that would be better and um, so that's what gives me hope is seeing those fishermen and those fish farmers out there doing things and then you know seeing the ocean and the fish and the the habitats and in many cases you know respond um, you know, you see some of these fish stocks that have been named disasters, and we aren't eating them, and they seem like we're not going to get them to respond. And then they do, you know, almost in some cases faster than you'd hope. Like, okay, guys, just, you know, play it low, listen, <laughs> take it easy, <laughs> and then we'll eat something else for a while. But, um, you know, I think that that's the hopeful thing. If we do the right thing, and the planet is is given a chance, you know, it will take it. So that's what I guess. Let's me sleep at night.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think along those lines a lot, if we just give nature a chance, it's so resilient. Um, but when I s- think about, you know, are we fucked? Have we totally screwed up our, our home planet? It kind of depends what side of the bed I wake up on, right? So we're not going to get back to pristine nature. We're not going to get 100%, not with 8 billion people on the planet. I mean, we are having a really big impact. So so some days I wake up and I'm like, Fighting for 20% I'm like we gotta just like hold on to something right and other days I'm like we can totally get back to 80 I want 80 we're fighting for 80 Um, so I think it's just you know and and wherever we end up on that spectrum which is not static right like it's like exercise you just have to keep saving the planet all day right for for forever Um, so wherever we end up on that spectrum it means a lot to the food security and livelihoods and cultures all around the world. And so the stakes are really high. Um, And so the difference between 60% ocean health and 80% ocean health has really big impact. So um, I'm just thinking about like, how close can we get? It's not about perfection. It's how close can we get to a healthy ocean? Um, And, The thing that really gives me hope is that it's not about fish. If we were trying to control fish, we'd be totally fucked. And I would just say, you know, forget it. But it's us. We just need to change human behavior. The fish are great. They're swimming around. They're trying not to get eaten. They're trying to make babies and do their thing. Um, It's humans who need to rethink our relationship with the sea, um, revamp that, and, and figure out how we can use the ocean without using it up. So I think... I think it's possible.
1: I feel like that was a positive note. There we go. (laughs) I don't feel doomed. (laughs) Thank you guys all for joining us and for coming in on your Sunday uh, at South by in Austin to chat with us. Does everyone want to go around and say where people can find you if they want to follow the amazing work that you or your companies are doing? Maybe starting with Ayana?
4: Sure. I am on the internet um, as Ayana Eliza on Twitter and Ayana Elizabeth on um, Instagram and Facebook, and my company Ocean Collective. It's a consulting firm for ocean conservation strategy. Um, it's Ocean Collective without an E at the end because that's a heavy metal band from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be confused with you. I love that. So you won't get confused, but just like no E, um, and you'll find us there and all the other amazing women in my collective.
3: Excellent. Well, I'm in Monterey, California at the Monterey Bay Aquarium most days, and um, you can follow certainly us on social media. We have, I think, more otters per square inch on our social media than <laughs> most other places. And if you, aren't, if you haven't, so cute. And if you haven't so seen cute. a baby otter, you haven't seen the most, um, the cutest creature on the planet, and certainly something worth saving the oceans for. On top of that, Seafood Watch has its own set of social media on Instagram, Twitter. And um, so follow us. I think it's a and really... And an app. And of course, the app, which is a great way to be in a restaurant or a grocery store and look up to see what seafood you might want to buy. So yeah, I would say just follow us and stay current. And um, we try to have fun at, at the same time. So thanks.
2: Um, and I am on Tanya at Tanya Streeter, Instagram and Twitter. I'm terrible on social media. Never going to make the big bucks as a social media whore, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's not my thing. Um, and on Facebook, Tanya Streeter. Um, and our film is A Plastic Ocean. Website is plasticoceans.uk. Definitely would. And we're, we're on Netflix. Everybody can, can and should watch it. Or any film that's about plastic
0: in the ocean. Amazing. Well, I'm at Oh Hey There, Mayor. I'm at Lale Hannah, and I also want to say: next time you go on vacation, don't get a straw with your pina colada. Oh, oh, oh! Thank I will you. find you, Here's
2: and here. I will hurt you. We will track you down. <laughs> well,
1: you can follow Conde Nast Traveler um, on Instagram, uh, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, all the things, uh, and we hope you continue tuning in to Women Who Travel. Thanks so much.